Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you have them, open to um, Nehemiah chapter 13. We have two weeks left in this incredible book. And let me open us in prayer. Nehemiah chapter 13. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I thank you for a new morning to greet us and the hope that we have in you. You're so faithful. And I thank you that, uh, as 2 Timothy says, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful because you can't deny yourself. We need to remember that today as we look at this chapter, especially through New Testament eyes. Um, So guide us today. Jesus, Jesus, we want you to emerge from the pages of Nehemiah 13 and show us your heart so clearly, your heart of protection and cleansing and holiness so that we would run to you as your followers. We really need you, we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, Ludwig von Beethoven's life, an incredibly accomplished life, Uh, But as most of you know, or many of you know, a severely scarred life. Uh, By the age of five, he was playing violin under the teaching of his father, who himself was an accomplished musician. By 13, he was an acclaimed concert organist. Dave, you'd be proud of that, right? 13. And by 20, he'd studied under Hayden and Mozart himself. In fact, Mozart prophesied, I'll use that word, over Beethoven, that he would give the world before he died something worth listening to. And he did. During his lifetime, he wrote nine symphonies, five concertos for the piano, numerous pieces of chamber music, sonatas, and other music for the violin, piano. In short, he was a genius. But his life, and he, was no stranger to difficulty. During his 20s, he began to lose feeling in his fingers and his hearing. He could no longer feel the music as he once did, as he said. His hearing grew worse as much uh, to the point where at the premiere of his ninth symphony, the audience stood up in thunderous applause and uh, his orchestra had to tell him to turn around to see it. He had no idea that was the response of the audience. Uh, Then he contracted pneumonia in his mid-50s and died at 56. Facing the reality, though, of hearing loss, Beethoven, in a letter to a friend, said this, I will seize fate by the throat. It will certainly not bend or crush me completely. Oh, it would be so lovely to live a thousand lives, but that's not for me. So I'll take what's been handed to me and make the most of it. By the way, I see that determination Uh, in some of you as you face adverse circumstances. But he had determined not to give in, but rather it was that I'm gonna seize fate by the throat that made him great. Now in our pursuit of rebuilding, renewing, restoring, we've talked throughout this whole book how we'll be opposed. And we're gonna see that in chapter 13. And we're gonna see how God puts on us the privilege and responsibility to seize fate by the throat to take circumstances and the power of God's name 
and make a difference. Look, this is not heaven. Bummer. This is earth and it's a battleground. And passivity won't win the day. Passivity will not give you the character of Christ that you desire. Passive bless me God prayers won't work for your kids or grandkids in this day and age. The cultural current is too swift and running too quickly away from God for that kind of living. And we're gonna see in Nehemiah chapter 13 what we need to do in the power of God to do it differently. As a matter of fact, look at the big idea on the top of page one. Guarding your gates takes more than willpower, it takes God's power, his power. I actually wish Nehemiah finished at chapter 10. I wish that was the end of the book. Or chapter 11 or chapter 12, we don't have time to go into those chapters, but chapter 11 and 12 is this incredible worship service on the walls of the city. There's a choir there, uh, there's, there's music, the Levites, the worshipers are, are doing it. It would just make a great movie if it ended there. The camera's panning out over Jerusalem, new walls, beautiful new temple, and they all lived happily ever after. But it doesn't. We have chapter 13, and actually this, it's chapter 13 and other chapters like it in the Bible that give credibility and authenticity to the scriptures. This book reflects real life. This Bible is not a fairy tale. In this side of eternity, things don't always end up in neatly tied bows. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, you've experienced that a lot. So you're gonna see in here, look at chapter 13, verse six. Let's just pick up right there. But while all this was going on, we'll talk about what all this is in a minute. I was not in Jerusalem. Somewhere between chapter 12 and 13, Nehemiah went back to be the cupbearer to the king. He said, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. We have no idea how long he was gone from Jerusalem, but when he returned, what he saw wasn't pretty. Let's put it in nicely. Look at verse seven. Look what it says. Here I learned about what? The evil. While he was away, the Jerusalem community, this is such the human condition, backed away from every vow they made to God in chapter 10. Remember chapter 10? Finished the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, chapter nine. The first recorded revival, that's Latin, to live again in chapter 10. The word of God is read for six hours. They hadn't heard it in their whole lifetime and they just start weeping as a community and they stand up for six hours. And then for the next six hours, they pray and they say, we're so sorry, God. And they record the history of Israel, which is a cycle that you see right in here. That's, that's the summary of chapter nine. That cycle's repeated six times in chapter nine in the prayer. And they say, God, we're going to do things differently. And they make vows in certain areas. And we find in chapter 13, when Nehemiah comes back, in every area they vowed, they walked away from the vow. Why? Because willpower has its limits. Promises are sincere, but there's no power really in a promise. We live as New Testament resurrection people. We live from an empty grave, an empty tomb with a power source in us. His power paired with our promises is what's gonna make the difference. 
We're going to see that in, in chapter 13. So what went wrong? We see a clue actually in verse 22. Are you in your Bibles? Look at verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites, those were the worship leaders of the Old Testament uh, for the temple, to purify themselves. So the, the, the uh, spiritual leaders were impure. And here's, here's what we're going to build out on today. And go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. We talked about this about three weeks ago when the wall was 90% completed four weeks ago, but the gates weren't done. And so the foreigners could come in through the gates, in and out as they pleased, and ransack the city. What good is a wall without gates? Uh, What good is a life that's only 50% in for Jesus, or 80% in with Jesus? When the gates are unguarded, intruders come in, and that's what took place. They weren't actively, keyword, guarding the gates to the city. So foreign intruders came in and invaded uh, Jerusalem in an insidious fashion. Friends, do you see the metaphor here of the sin nature? It's not overt. They weren't blowing trumpets saying, we are going to ruin everything you want to live for. Sin doesn't work that way. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 Verse 14 says there's an insidious, deceitful nature to sin. It deceives you. The gates were unguarded. Intruders came in. And in an insidious fashion, the followers of Yahweh diluted their passion for obedience. Their hearts were divided. I imagine they didn't shift overnight, what we're going to see. But it was a slow, seemingly unnoticed drift away from God. Am I making sense? Okay. So four gates I want to encourage you as we walk through this chapter with your life, with my life that need to be guarded. Okay. Turn to page two. Let's look at these gates. Here's the first, the rooms of your heart. Chapter 13. Let's see what happened when the foreigners intruded the city, invaded the city. Let's see what took place. Verse four. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. These are rooms that would hold the offerings uh, in the temple. He was, circle these two words if you have a paper Bible, closely associated, we'll get back to that, with Tobiah. Circle that name, we'll get back to that. He had provided him a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musician, the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Now, to appreciate the spiritual entropy that's taking place, you have to understand about the main characters involved something. On the surface, you may say, wow, this is actually a good thing. Eliashab is being uh, hospitable, letting, letting Tobiah into the temple and giving him a whole room. Actually, if you read closely, almost a suite in the temple. But this is not our first meeting of Tobiah. We met him earlier in the book. He appears like four or five times in the book. Tobiah was a relentless enemy of God. In Hebrew, his name actually means God is good. Another deceitful little insidious entryway. He was partly Jewish. He had a Jewish name, but he was a foreigner. He was the one that ridiculed Israel. He was an enemy of Nehemiah. Tried to pull him away from the wall and the building project. 
Nehemiah made sure he was so evil, he made sure Tobiah never made it through the walls on his watch. And here he is in the temple at the heart of the religious community. The lesson we learn right here is this, guard your heart. Guard your heart. As New Testament people, we don't have a temple. This is, um, some people would call this building God's house. But actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, uh, it says this, do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you've received from God, you're not your own. On the cross, in the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, when Jesus says it is finished and died, the veil was ripped actually from top to bottom. God ripped it. The veil to the Holy of Holies, access to God. It was God's way of saying to the world, you no longer need an intermediary, a high priest, between me and you. Now that Jesus has died, you can come to me yourself. And then Paul interprets that and saying, actually, there's no temple anymore. As a follower of Christ, you're the temple. Look around, everybody. Look at each other. Come on, really. Let's be human for a minute. Look at someone in the eyes. You are looking at holiness. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This demands an ethic for what we do with our lives and how we treat each other. And then in the Proverbs, we saw that verse up there, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, the Proverbs says, guard your heart. Guard the rooms of your temple. Be careful what you let in. Don't be passive about these things. In the strength of the Holy Spirit, Take it by the throat and guard your gates. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse eight and nine. I was greatly displeased. We see his attitude first. He couldn't stand that evil was at the core. And I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then we see his actions. I gave orders to purify the rooms. This is just a beautiful picture, my friends, of what confession should look like, right? You are sick of the evil within you or the sin or the compromise. You see it from God's perspective and you confess it. You tell God, I'm sorry. It just means to agree with, I'm sorry. This is wrong. And then you purify. That's repentance. I will do things different from now on. Then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God. This is a vivid metaphor of what it means as followers of Christ. Uh, to live in grace and forgiveness. See, Nehemiah determined, don't miss this, okay? He would not live with wrong in a vessel that was built for right. He would not live with wrong, Tobiah, in a vessel that was built for right. Have you guarded the gates of your heart or are you passive with the Tobias in our world? Those things that mock Jesus overtly or what he stands for in his word. Are you giving subtle agreements with things that you shouldn't? 
The first gate that needs to be guarded is the rooms of your heart. But it doesn't end there. Look at this. Next, the gate of generosity. It starts at the core, and then this is how sin works, right? It works itself out. Sin is internal and attitudinal before it is external and expressed. It always starts internal. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about, right? Jesus addressed that. So let's look at the guarding, the gate of greed here. Verse 10, I also learned, uh, by the word, boy, I also learned in Hebrew means to make an inquiry, to discover. This is an active search that Nehemiah is going on. It's a great posture we should have over our lives. Constantly evaluating in community, how are we doing? I learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? See, when compromise is at the core, when Tobias are in the temple, it will work itself out. The communal worship is impacted. Tobias in the storerooms of the temple, so there's no more room for the offering. This, this makes sense. Hence, the priests don't require an offering because they have no place to put it. Then the priests can't eat, so they have to go out and work. And everything gets compromised. Do you see the, the domino effect of sin, right? Ah, this is so, gosh, it makes so much sense to me. I think it's just a look or a glance or an attitude or this or that. But there's always a domino effect of sin. So it's so vital for us today. God has always encouraged us. Give him the first and best of our time, of our talents, of our treasure for kingdom advancement. We need to have a generous spirit. Uh, I'm always trying to teach this to my girls. And uh, when we go to vacation, we vacation up in Tahoe, uh, in Tahoe Donner. And in Truckee, there's a Dairy Queen. I'm so sad they, they close a Dairy Queen on Woodside Road. That is a lament. We should be revolting and protesting. Anyway, I, I digress. We call that the house of nutrition. Dairy Queen. Love blizzards. So I was trying to teach them about always about generosity and God's standard. So we were at the drive-thru and we all ordered our blizzards and I thought, oh, I, I got a great lesson here. So as the blizzards came in, I've got five daughters. Uh, as the blizzards came in, I took a scoop, ate a scoop, put the thing in and, and passed them back. <laughs> took a scoop, ate a scoop. And you can imagine my girls were protesting. Took a scoop, ate a scoop. And then they said, what's going on? I'm like, that's the daddy tax. And they said, Dad, that's not fair. I'm like, wait a second. You want fair? I'm like, here's the deal. I, I, you can have the whole blizzard. I will buy you the whole blizzard. I'm just asking for one spoonful. I paid for it. You can have it all. I just want the first spoonful off the top. Isn't it terrible growing up in a pastor's home? <laughs> And that raised a lot of discussion. Uh, that's the only time I've ever eaten their blizzards, by the way. Don't report me to Child Protective Services or anything like that. But as I was driving, I was the one who was convicted. Thinking of the Lord saying, it's exactly what I require of you. I've given you so much. And you can use so much of it for your enjoyment. Just give me the first portion. And you enjoy the rest. That's what wasn't going on in the Israelite community. 
And they could have justified it through a number of ways, but they didn't guard the gate of generosity. Can I ask, are you a generous person? Not just financially, what about generous spirited? What about a generosity of time? A generosity of talents? In your neighborhood, are you known as a generous person? Guard that gate. Now, look at the next one. You ready to get convicted? Has anyone not been convicted yet? Okay, this, this one will hit us all. The gate of rest. In those days, I saw people in Judah, verse 15, uh, 13, yeah, 15, the people in Judah treading the wine presses on the Sabbath. This is one of the main things they confessed in chapter 10. We have completely disregarded your Sabbath. And he comes back and sees it happening again. Bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, together with the wine, the grapes, the figs, all the other kind of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Keyword, on the what? Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. It's like deja vu. Uh, So you need to know some history here. In the Jewish system, God set aside a day for rest and reflection, the first day of the week. In the West, we get it all backwards, right? Because we're so uh, self-absorbed, frankly. We work to rest. When I was in uh, high school, there was a band called Loverboy. Has anyone ever heard of Loverboy? Their big song was, everybody's working for the weekend. Weekend. But God set it up where you rest to work. The way God set it up uh, in the Hebrew days in creation, there's, there's evening, then morning, the first day. The day starts with rest to a good Jewish person and you work from rest. The first day of the week is to be a day of rest and restoration and perspective. It's doing what you're doing right here, right? Reorienting towards true north. And then you go to work from that perspective. But in the West, we back it up and we work to rest as opposed to rest to work. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Okay. So God actually modeled this in creation and it's one of his top 10 commandments. We know this intuitively as parents. How many of us told our kids, actually commanded them take a nap, right? How many of them fought back? We fight back like that little child towards God when he says, take a nap. What a good God. I command you to rest. Isn't that amazing? God knows us so well. And so as Nehemiah is walking through the city, he, wit- he witnesses a violation. They're turning God's gift, Sabbath, into a grind. We do that all the time. It's not that God forbids his people from making profit, nor does he see anything wrong with a successful business. He just encourages us to guard the gate of pace and do life his way, trusting that we can accomplish more, uh, that he can accomplish more through six days of work than we could through seven. That's the point. Now, last night I was driving down Alpine Road and there was one of those um, traffic signs that are digital that do your, your speed. I was, I was like 40 feet behind a car and I saw it, the speed limit was 35 miles an hour. And the car went through and it said 35, yellow lights, all that. I came up, I was going 40, that's legit, right? I give five miles of grace. And, um, but it was red. I'm like, gosh, that's not nice. And then all of a sudden in block letters, it said, slow down. 
I think that's a sign for all of us when it comes to the pace of our lives. We all are going a little too fast. We all could use a traffic sign from heaven and we have it in our word. How many more times does God have to tell us throughout all of scripture, you're mortal. There's boundaries to your life. Slow down. Now look at what verse 17 to 18. Lest you think of making much of this, look how Nehemiah classified this. What is this wicked thing you're doing? What? Yeah, yeah, Nehemiah's saying. He knows the human condition. Does anyone else do this? When I confess sin, I reclassify it so it sounds more palatable to me. But Nehemiah comes in and says, let me call it what it is. This is wicked. This is what happens when you don't guard the gate at the core, it'll work itself out, and then you'll work harder and harder and harder to keep up with the culture that God never commanded us to keep up with, but to influence in a supernatural way. That's what he's saying to them. And Nehemiah says, this is wrong. You're desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought this calamity on us in our city. He's reminding them of that longest prayer in the Bible where the cycle on page one is repeated six times. They rebelled. Will you confess this, he's saying. I'm sure they had many excuses for leaving this gate unguarded, just like I do when I lead an unhealthy pace and engage in continual plate spinning, which ultimately erodes my soul in the richest of my relationship with God and with people I love. I can't tell you how detrimental this unguarded gate is. I think it's the worst of them all. I really do. So write down two words under this. Slow down. That was a word from God to me last night. Tremendous book written for pastors. It'd be good for anybody though by a guy named Pete Scazzaro. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. He says this, spiritual deficits typically reveal themselves in too much activity. Unhealthy leaders engage in more activities than their combined spiritual, physical, and emotional reserves can sustain. They give out for God more than they receive from him. Slow down. The last gate, the home, the home. And I just want to say before we jump into this, grace to everybody. But let's talk about the home. This is the saddest of all the unguarded gates. It started in the temple it went to generosity, went to rest, and ultimately this is what's most effective when we don't guard the gates of our hearts. Verse 23, moreover in those days, I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Those names mean nothing to you. They are foreign enemies of God. In those days, it was all about arranged marriage. There's plenty of opportunities in the Israelite community. And these men, for whatever reason, whatever justification, said, you know what, I'm going outside the gates, outside the walls, I want to marry a foreign woman. God, she has everything. She's got a great personality. She's got a great work ethic. Oh yeah, she doesn't love you, but she's got everything else. And you want me to be happy, don't you? I deserve this. Sound familiar? prohibition against marrying foreigners was always intended to protect and provide. By the way, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, very clear that as followers of Christ, we are not to be yoked up, uh, an ox with 
uh, a crossbar where we plow a field together, that's a metaphor here, with people who don't know or follow or love Jesus. Very clear. It's not because God doesn't love them, but it's because, uh, not 100%, but usually the overwhelming majority of the time, the person not following Christ will lead the person following Christ away from values that matter much. And what happened here, through this unguarded gate, Israel forfeited the primary, primary God-designed greenhouse and training ground for God's passion, God's teaching, God's training. In marrying foreigners, they gave up the home. And who paid the price? The children. The innocent ones who had no rights, who had no say in the game, but just lived in the sad results of a choice their parent made. Look at verse 24. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of the other people. This is so sad, everybody. They didn't even know the language of Judah. They didn't know Hebrew. When you don't know Hebrew, you can't read God's word in that day. And so in this unguarded gates, they cut off from these children their hope for power and strength in the boundaries that God provided, the word of God. And men and women, it's the word of God that does the work of God. So important. Hebrew would be the language of scripture. And so Nehemiah has a Popeye moment. It's all he can stand. He can't stand no more. Look at verse 25. I rebuke them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Literally, it means to make bald or slick or polished. <laughs> uh, by the way, most commentators parallel this with Jesus turning over tables. Uh, lest you think, oh my gosh, this is, he's so mean. Uh, no, no, he's not being mean, he's being holy. We'll get to that in a minute. He warned them to do this. And in a Christian community, when the people who should fight don't fight, the fighters stand up and fight for them. That's how it should work. Not a condemning way, but in my whole Christian life, that's how it's worked. In community, when people who should be fighting aren't fighting, the adults come up and fight for them. That's what Nehemiah is doing. They lost their way. He's disciplining them, hoping the little pain will keep them from a greater pain. Does that sound like a parenting principle? Anyone use it? I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. You're not to give their daughters in marriage to your sons or for yourselves. I turn back to Nehemiah chapter four. We gotta land this plane, but I want you to see this. Nehemiah chapter four, what's he doing? Verse 14, we read this verse. My favorite verse in the whole book of Nehemiah. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, this is before the wall's even built, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Those are the foreigners. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In other words, you see enemies, I see God who's bigger than the enemies. And fight. Fight for your families. Fight for your sons and your daughters. Fight for your wives and your homes. He told them to do this. They slipped into passivity. And Nehemiah said, that's great for you. 
I don't have that option. So I will fight on your behalf. That's what he's doing here. I want to ask this so humbly, but when it comes to whatever relationships in your home, remember, forgetting what lies behind, looking forward to what lies ahead. Don't live in regret. Live for now. I want to ask this very humbly. Do you have a spiritual fight in you? Do you have a sense, not on my watch, God? I am going to pray like mad. I am going to share scripture. I'm going to live boldly. I'm going to encourage. I'm going to read your word. And I'm going to see what it means to be a husband. Or what it means to be a wife or a grandfather or a grandmother. Or a child or a son or a daughter. And I am going to fight to live into that. I am telling you it is needed more in our day than it was in Nehemiah's day. Because the gates are wide open and unguarded. And it's infiltrating even the spiritual communities these days. And it just saddens me that there's no fight. I'm not saying there's no. But it saddens me that there's not more fight in the church. There's excuses. There's passivity. And I'm just saying this as your pastor, maybe in a prophetic way. We need to fight. And I'm not talking about ripping people's hair out or beating people. Don't do that. I'm talking about spiritually. Fighting for time with the Lord fighting to know the word, fighting to encourage and bless and pray for. That's what I'm talking about. Am I making sense? Are we okay? Here, okay. Do what you can to guard this gate. Trust me. And we're actually going to encourage you. I want to quickly show you two things coming up. Here's the first. Uh, this Wednesday night, uh, we have just, uh, can you go to the next slide first? Uh, Brian Wren is a gifted teacher in the area of marriage. He does this thing called vows. Wednesday night, 7 to 8.30, you will not be disappointed. I'll give you your money back. I think it's free. But I'll give you your money back if you're not satisfied. I will give you your money back for this next thing. May 17th and 18th, we're bringing in two of the best marriage coaches I know of, uh, Jim Burns and Doug Fields, to talk about marriage, refreshing your marriage. It's a Friday night, and it's a Saturday morning. Uh, we know you live busy lives. I do too. And we're bringing it here to you. We're not asking you to go somewhere. Come here. We've got an engaged couple. Come here. It's great engagement counseling for you. Um, it will be fantastic. So write those dates down. Don't miss it. Um, I, if I could, I'd bribe you. I, I would pay you back if you came and felt like that wasn't worth my money. I don't think anyone will feel that. Okay? We want to come alongside you in here. And so at this point... The camera pans out of Jerusalem. And the last recorded words of Nehemiah parallel almost the first recorded words of Nehemiah. A prayer. Remember me, O oh God. Everything's still a mess socially, spiritually. Gates are rebuilt, a new temple, but the people aren't restored. And this is how Israel finishes in the Old Testament. This is the last historical account of the Old Testament before Christ. The next historical account that takes place uh, will be uh, Jesus walking in through those gates and making a difference in that city. Ultimately to ride out of those gates to his death. We'll celebrate that in the next couple weeks. So what we have for you today is, uh, and Peter will guide us, you have these in your bulletin, and these have to do with Easter. I'd like you to think through what gate's unguarded. What gate in my life is unguarded? Maybe one of those four areas touched a nerve for you. We want you to write that down. 
And then Peter will guide you what to do with this. It has to do with these pins you see around the sanctuary. Every service is doing that. And these will be repurposed for Easter. You'll see these put together in an amazing, beautiful montage uh, for Easter. Okay? Let's pray. So Jesus, we give ourselves to you and our unguarded gates. We all have them. And I thank you, Lord, that there's grace for us. But Lord, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to take an active part with you. I pray against willpower and empty promises. I pray for your power right now to bring about um, repentance. That today would be a line in the sand, things would be different. Lord Jesus, take the intruders that have come in. We confess the sin. Purify us afresh and anew. I'm so glad we're together today. I'm so glad you're gracious today. I'm so glad for second and third and fourth and fifth and hundredth starts, new starts in you. Let it today be another, but a different kind of new start. Guide us, please. We need you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.